Welcome back to another episode of Early Music Monday, part two of the Andrew special on Sing Actually, and more particularly, we dive into his piece, Poor Richard's Madrigal, a homage to the madrigalists of times past. This is Early Music Monday. Okay, before we get into playing a recording of Poor Richard's Madrigal, I want to play a King Singer's recording of Thomas Morley's Now is the Month of Maying, so we can really compare the two. Again, something that Andrew and I care a lot about that we say over and over again ad nauseum, and one of the goals of this podcast is to help bring early music out of the museum by connecting it whether it's musically or non-musically through aesthetic or through fundamental principles or concepts or ideas to the music of today, music of the old, music of the new. So uh, I'm going to play for you. This is a recording off of YouTube of the King Singers singing Now Is the Month of Maying by Thomas Morley. And then after that, I'll kind of introduce Andrew's piece, Poor Richard's Madrigal. And uh, we'll compare the two. Now is the month of May, when May lights are playing. Fa-la-la-la-la-la-la, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la. Now is the month of May, when May lights are playing. Fa-la-la-la-la-la-la, fa-la-la-la-la-la. Each with his body laughs upon the greeny grass. la 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 each with his body lass upon the greeny grass. The spring clad all in gladness doth love the winter sadness. The spring clad all in gladness doth love the winter sadness. And to their backward sound, the nymphs tread out their ground. And to their backward sound, the nymphs tread out their ground. Why then, why sit we musing, you sweet delight refusing? Why then, why sit we musing, you sweet delight refusing? Say dainty nymphs and speak, shall we pay body Say dainty nymphs and speak, shall we play body <laughs> So before we get into the interview and our discussion, I want I just wanted to play his our, our live recording of Poor Richard's Madrigal in its entirety. So this was premiered as part of our Sing Actually concert back in February of 2023. Um, we performed it 
in Springville, Utah, the Springville Museum of Art, Libby Gardner Hall, University of Utah campus. And then we performed it at Carnegie Hall in New York in March as we did a condensed version of Sing Actually at Carnegie Hall, which was amazing. So we've performed this piece a couple times, and it's a it was a fave amongst the singers because it was so singable, it was fun but sophisticated, and uh, hopefully you'll hear why as you listen to it, and uh, and hopefully you hear the 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 elements from the past, from the Renaissance in particular, that make it work even in today's modern aesthetic. And then Andrew and I are going to talk about some of those things. So without further ado, Paul Richard's Madrigal. Welcome back, Drew. Thanks, Cam. Ever since we, maybe I shouldn't admit this. Well, I don't know if, well, it doesn't matter. It's not like a, it's just, a, it's just a whatever. But ever since we performed Sing Actually, part of me has been 
waiting for this episode of Early Music Monday. This Tuesday in August? Yes. This particular Tuesday in August. I've been waiting. The very first of August. I think I've been subconsciously waiting for it, too. Because it certainly... Well, there's only 13 days until my kids go back to school. (laughs) Oh, for so for a different reason. Oh, is that a different reason? It seemed like the same reason when you first said it, but now that I think about it, it's kind of built on a different, different, different reason. (laughs) (laughs) Contemporary. I'm looking through my music library to pull up the score for our topic of discussion today, which is Andrew Maxfield's new madrigal, Poor Richard's Madrigal. There it is. I have my score open. Okay, I have a quick question about it. Yeah. In the great, there's a great dramatic piece of American television called The Office. (laughs) And there is, which takes place in a certain city, Scranton, Pennsylvania. And there is a bar that they frequent in that show called Poor Richards. Hey, we're going to Poor Richards for some shots. We're going to Poor Richards. Who's coming? They go to Poor Richards all the time in the show. So when you first when you first said, I'm writing Poor Richards Madrigal, I literally pictured characters from The Office singing at a bar. And I was so on board. Could you arrange it's not, that? It's not any it's not worse than that, what you wrote by any means. I was just expecting drunkenness to be involved. And now mm. since it's in 5-8, it does imply a hint of perhaps um what's the word? Slightly non kilter. Non sobriety. Oh, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think this would be I think this would be very uh dramatically enhanced if it were sung by the cast of the office i'm going to leave that oh yeah can you imagine steve can you imagine steve carell singing the (laughs) oh man it's so good well so but that that's that leads to a relatively serious question of what is poor richards if it's clearly like an east coast ben franklin thing because that's in pennsylvania and Oh and yeah, Franklin. Well, so what? I don't know where Poor Richard comes from. Who is well, that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I don't. I mean, I don't know all the history. But when I was searching for a text for a light-hearted piece, I was yeah. just I was looking for. I read so many short poems, and um, for whatever reason, I went down the rabbit hole of reading poems that Ben Franklin wrote under pseudonyms. Hmm. And, you know, he, he invented and then wrote for the Poor Richard's Almanac, mm. which was, um, you know, it, it's like a, a, it was a, a popular um, periodical in its time. And mm. uh, it had, it had silly things like weather forecasts and farming tips and uh, letters to the editor and poetry and all the rest. It's, it's a real kind of a grab bag. Um, wow. But one of the texts, and I think it was actually published under his name, but I I don't know. 
but it was it was published in Poor Richard's Almanac. Was this this poem? But this is just one of many that were published in that format, and it just struck me immediately as very funny and kind of silly, and it has like a wink and a nod in the text. Oh yeah, totally and does. Very fitting for a madrigal. It's yeah, it it really does. It fits into that what's the word milieu that genre perfectly i think because again it's all about some kind of love whether metaphorically explained or directly and very dramatic and not even the ones that are like completely morose and melancholy aren't really that serious and so especially in the english tradition like the italian tradition i mean some of those gesualdo and monteverdi madrigals that are they're they're borderline tragic <laughs> they're a little bit more they're a little bit more on the quote-unquote serious side but but even still it's it was they were never meant to be that way in their day so I think this, I'm going to read the poem here from Ben Franklin. March, wait, one Monday. Wait, what is that? How does that start? Yeah, well, one, it's, it's a little, it's a little, it's just like the, the, the yeah, date. That, that was kind something of about when it was published, March half, March half, 31, 31 days. days. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. My love and I for kisses played. She would keep stakes. I was content. But then I won, she would be paid. This made me ask her what she meant. Quoth she, since you are in this wrangling vein, here, take your kisses, give me mine again. Yeah. It's Silliness. Silly. It's, it's silly, nonsense. Right? Yeah, like, it's awesome. It's like a little silly lover's game or something like that. But the, uh, it's, it's awesome. It's lighthearted, right? I, yeah, I which like, is so a, rare today, I think. Oh, totally. I feel like um like these days we totally get the like the morose breakup song. And, oh yeah. Right, like, you know, just Waldo Monteverdi, <laughs> they, they they would have been dressing all like goth and playing slowcore yeah. and like <laughs> they're you know bleeding all over the stage and like <laughs> Say with John Dowland, you know, yeah, John like, Dowland is probably one of those, yeah, even though he's yeah, English, sure. he definitely is one of those oh, two. Yeah, yeah, like... Like, yeah, I always, you know, when I was an undergrad, I always remembered Dowland because he was a downer, right? <laughs> Dowland the downer. Well, they'd be like, you know, they'd, they'd be like kind of crying as they play their guitar and messing with their distortion pedals, and we'd all have like all these feelings, but and it would be like, it'd be like Kurt Cobain. Like doing Nirvana songs solo as a soloist when he's yeah, like some of those acoustic. songs where he's acoustic, the hair over the eyes, oh, yeah. or ev or Evanescence, you know, this yeah. like emo grunge. Yeah, man. Yeah. Totally so we, real. But we so we all relate to that these days. But what we don't have room for so much is the the silly song. But I there, know. Was a, there was a whole bunch of silly. And I think sometimes when the Renaissance, you know, seem when Renaissance music seems a little silly, it's because we just don't have that counterpart 
in our in our modern pop catalog. Although, I mean, you know, songs like Blue Moon or there's a whole category of like uh, right. romantic, lighthearted songs in the Great American Songbook, for example. And those actually, I think, are not a bad um, analogy. I think when, yeah. we, when we think of the, the real silly stuff, I always think of like Robin's Minstrels in Monty Python and the Holy Grail and like... <laughs> Right, <laughs> right, right. Tra- traipsing through the woods, plucking their yeah. liars, and yeah. that's but, a little silly, but you know. <laughs> but at the same time, I think. Well, I think you you're right, and I think the the only thing I can really equate to it is like stand up comedy, but like it's not. That's not even a sh- song genre. Yeah, where where it's like on the surface, it seems silly but to execute is extremely difficult and you know you think of the great the great actors who are dramatic actors but they can also do comedy and i've heard a lot of actors say that comedy is actually significantly more difficult than than serious acting and so oh, i think yeah. there's some you know there there because i and i don't know why that is we could probably spend hours or days or episodes talking about the that concept but i think the same goes for these madrigals it's like there's a way to do it where it's cheesy and trite and there's a way to do it where it's silly but slightly sophisticated or not even so slightly and and i and and to achieve that i think is actually extremely difficult but i think you nailed it with poor richards because the singers loved it no, it's true. And the singers loved it. Super singable. The harmonies aren't um, elementary, mm-hmm. but the the subject matter, the textures, the melodic contour, the modal, um, the modal landscape, I guess, for a better word, or, or architecture, I guess, sure. kind of set it up to have that, that silly, lighthearted feel without being trite and without being cheesy or kind of elementary well that's good to hear i was just thinking about what you're saying about comedy being hard one of my favorite movies you know you know full full disclosure here is a um it's an older movie it's a screwball comedy called what's up doc with yeah barbara streisand and ryan o'neill in it and and it is i feel like it is such a work of genius because it requires not only writing, not not only an idea and a story that's clear and good or whatever, but the writing has to be brilliant. And then the timing, everything hinges yeah. on timing. Like if you have a sad story, um, you can have a, a great story, you can have good writing, but it's kind of like, yeah, I'm sad. And it and that's like the whole. The, the the entire job is done just by communicating that one thing. But if in in this uh, in a movie like this, um, and I think it's true of really great um, stage performances too. There's a beat, yeah, and, and really great actors who get it can can feel this sort of like rhythm. Yeah, I, I think is almost it may be kind of unique to comedy because. It, the the whole idea of comedy is the bait and switch where you think you're being taken one direction and then 
the and then somebody pulls the rug out from under you and you get this like you laugh because of what just happened to you your expertise right. your expectation was turned upside down yeah and i i think comedy is crazy hard um, yeah and i admire the like the people that do it really really well oh and yeah i, I totally I, I, agree it's terrifying because it you, like you're so exposed um but in a piece like this i feel like the text is based on a little bit of a gag right where it, it's like okay we're gonna play a game for kisses and i'm gonna keep score hey wait a minute you <laughs> cheated i want all my kisses back it's like okay <laughs> i get it that that's silly right right, right. and then this this but that's that's how but to deliver that is so you know because you could have two people sorry i'm yawning don't yawn must it's early music monday it's like you could have two people do that in real life and it like wouldn't really be that funny if other people were watching or you could put that into a movie with someone like jack black and it would be hysterical so like you know it, it it that's the whole i think that's the whole point is that a lot of people can relate to it but then also that timing the beat that bait and switch all of that comes together to make comedy really work and i think that's probably why it's so difficult you know yeah yeah anyway, well one my, of the many reasons yeah yeah but that that was kind of the backdrop for for this piece yeah i think it works great and then and it just kind of so if you we uh we listened to it and uh that opening it just makes you kind of want to groove you know that's all bouncy i mean the here's the thing is like i grew up i i think the way that i learned vocal music was by listening to my dad's um early king singers lps like when i was a kid i remember lying on the carpet next to his uh next to the turntable and he had one record that i think was out of print for a long time but one side of it was french chanson and the other side was italian madrigals and then there was another one where there were english madrigals because i remember listening to now is the month of may now is the month of may when merry lads are playing and yeah. I thought, now is the month of May when merry lads are playing. This is silly, but but you, you <laughs> right? You know, but I mean, but you but you love it at the same time. And and when I was thinking about writing, when I was thinking about setting this uh, kind of glib, funny text as a madrigal, I thought, well, it would be fun if it were off kilter. Mm-hmm. with the taki to taka taki to taka tak just kind of like it never quite sit, fits in its own shoes feeling i yeah. wonder how but but oftentimes vocal ensembles it um it can be intimidating to be doing things in mixed meters or odd meters or whatever and right. I thought, well how could i get into it in a way that's totally intuitive yeah and it's just like a total it's from the get-go it's like this is what we're referencing we are in the world of madrigals and it just the 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 homage to the to the renaissance greats is just awesome well and so the opening 
the opening tempo marking, if you want, or the expression, the expressive marking is a modern month of Maying. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's silly. And I, and it quotes morally right out of the gate. And I like that. It makes well, sense. Well, and I, and I love, let's see. Measure three. And that you have a met to go backwards in time, a mensuration change right off the bat, you know, where you're, you're changing that pulse, not only to five, eight, but changing the pulse. So it's kind of like this, we're, we're introduced to something that's familiar, or even if they haven't heard that madrigal exactly, there's something about it. Again, there's something enunciatorial about it, you know? Yeah, yeah, it it, it does signal. It's it's sort of like it's a meta thing where it's signaling to the audience, this is indeed a madrigal. Yeah, exactly. It's like the herald of the town, like heralding in what's Mm -hmm. happening. And then all of a sudden, but like not for very long, or not very long after that, you're kind of, it's that bait and switch where you're immediately taking a new direction where the meter and the pulse has changed and we're in this yeah. off kilter 5.8. And the mode kind of has changed because you have that, it feels like now all of a sudden that D has become your home. Right. Mod- oh, modally speaking. And then it, so it's almost like this, and you have F, F naturals and B naturals. And so you have this like mode mix you're going on. You're like, what is going on? It feels really kind of epic at the same time. It's really cool. Well, I yeah, I think if you look at it through like the harmo- harmony lens, then the key signature is G as though we were in right. the key of G. And we And I think we end up there. I think that's how the piece finishes, if I remember right. And it signals it right at right out of the gate, but that um, sharp four, that sort of Lydian color, if you want to think about it that way, or it's part of a you know the the like a double leading tone cadence and these kinds of yeah. s- signature sounds that you hear in the Renaissance. It I think it's that C sharp that kind of clues the listener's ear that this is yeah. sort of a nod to a period piece but it isn't going to literally be one. Yeah. And and like you say, it, it toggles in and out of, um, in and out of different uh, sort of modal homes. Yeah. Oh, which is, yeah. I'm all about that. I, I think that kind of music is so interesting because it's, even in something like this, you can, you can use it and you can write stuff that, you know, when you arrive somewhere, it feels completely inevitable, but unexpected at the same time. Yeah, well, if you look at the way that the piece develops, um, like you said, there's, you know, by the time we're in the second page of music, there's F sharps and B flats. Um, one of the things that I like about uh, Renaissance music and modern modal music is that it doesn't put your brain to sleep the way that tonal music does sometimes because I feel like tonal music um I mean this is like a, a silly sweeping judgment but it, it's a little bit sure. like a knock, it's like a knock knock joke where it's like you and I both know exactly how the template works and, 
and there yeah. can be really funny knock knock jokes, but it's still a knock knock joke. Like one goes to the right. four, goes to the five, goes to the one, and it's just yeah. like it's like pre-programmed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but in modal music, the 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 construction of the line is what creates the harmony, and the whether you're using church modes or synthetic modes or whatever, you're the the um the tendencies don't play into the knock knock joke right right the pull the gravity the gravitational pull is all kinds of it's like a different universe yeah and so an f sharp in this context feels kind of like the third if d is the home or it's kind of like a leading tone if g is the home we're not so sure but then it's we have this B flat that it so we have an F sharp that, that, that's sort of like tugging our ears up and a B flat that's pulling our ears down, and you could say that it's all based off of the acoustic scale where you have or the what one of my friends calls the um, mixed up Lydian, where you have a a flatted seventh, <laughs> oh and a, and a and a raised fourth, but it, it you know but it, that it, does that's really common actually in well. I should say really common in Herbert Howells uses that all the time. Yeah. And, and Owen Park uses that all the time. There's really cool melodic possibilities and harmonic possibilities with, and it's such a strong gravitational pull to unexpected places when you use those two in particular. Well, that's I even good. did a piece like that too. I wrote a piece a while ago that I didn't even know what I was just like, huh, that's this is kind of weird. Like theoretically, I, I didn't like love what I was doing, but it like it kept working so well on the page and in my ears as I was playing through it that I was like, well, I guess I guess we're doing this. This is like I was a young and naive undergrad who knew nothing. But I, it it just kept working. So yeah, that lowered seven and sharp four is a really, really interesting thing. Well, I think it works really well because I mean it because it literally is derived from the overtone series. It is the overtone series. And because when you when you spell out the overtone series, you get these high fourths and low sevenths, and your thirds and sixths are different from I mean everything's different from equal temperament, but those are the the kind of the standout features. And when you have people singing unaccompanied, they tend, you know, good vocalists that are listening for the that kind of pop effect of uh, well-tuned chords. And I think this is especially true for smaller ensembles, uh, you know, chamber choir or consort or something like that. They're 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 gravitating towards a just intonation where you get those yeah. really rich um explosive fifths right oh yeah i think it's it's really it's it's subconsciously but just from like a physics level from an from nature man i i think it you i think people would tend to lean into a sound that's based on the overtone series because i think there's actually like a physical sensation that comes from it and so this piece part of why i think it sings itself if that's really true i mean i'm not i'm not making the advertisement but I think part of it is because it leans into that sound. Yeah. And even if, if we're looking at the melody, 
my love and I. That like lowered seventh high for kisses played. That's going to be in a different key than the song was. Sorry, I didn't. We didn't listen to it. FYI, everybody, I don't have the key in my ear or perfect pitch, but um, that that started that you know if the the shape or the the span of that opening melody, the first notes in F sharp, the top of the melody before it turns around and goes down is that C natural. And so that's the tritone that pulls itself, which, but it, it's kind of this modal idea too. And so, because it, again, it's like, feels like that should be in G, but everything's circling the D and this kind of D mode. So it's really cool. I, I love that. And then go, you know, you have like this. And I think, I think that's one of the interesting things about, actual renaissance music is yeah. that it isn't tonal it isn't in a key it's sort of right pr it's proto-tonal and right like when you listen to talus is 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 it uh you know i've talked about this with if you love me it's like is it actually in a key and, and the answer is like well no it's like it's proto-tonal it was it was on its way there and it wouldn't be too many more years before we mm -hmm. had words for like tonic and dominant and all this kind of stuff but we weren't there yet it was it was right we had like unintended features of tonality but be, but we hadn't yet arrived at that destination and right so you you know if, if a melody outlines a tritone which is a little weird if you're in like strict renaissance um like a counterpoint approach um it's not like that tritone wants right only one thing uh and besides it's like it's resolved contrapuntally in a linear way mm -hmm. and it in and it just creates a a tang to it from a from in a modal sense right and if you think of like you know these renaissance era theorists like tinctoris and zarlino and the, like they were trying so hard to reconcile the fact that modes were essentially uh they were coming up with their own definition of the modes and they were getting what previous generations had come up with they were kind of getting it wrong <laughs> and it was only and it was intent uh, quote unquote wrong and it was only used for they it only really works if you're talking modally from their perspective it doesn't really work to put an entire polyphonic piece of music into a modal category of it's in this mode because it was all about what the final note was and it was to categorize single lines and chant and so that's why that that's something that i think plays out in your piece really well is it's like well you really could say that you know, maybe the soprano kind of hints to this mode, the alto kind of hints to a different one. And not not through the whole piece, obviously, but there's there's moments where it's like, oh, it's almost like they're in two different modes because they're using two different patterns or whatever, which gives it that ambiguity, which is why it's so hard to like, it's so hard for people like me when you're trained from the beginning to think tonally 
to think of mu- analyzing a piece or looking at a piece of music through that lens that yeah. it's not all one thing functioning together functional harmony functioning toward a single purpose it's individual lines acting interdependently with each other right right because the i think what happens for so many of us that go through college music training is you know we sit down in the first week of harmony and you start with this um assumption that there's such a thing as a chord you're like okay right here's some roman numerals let's label stuff okay see you next week and yeah and, and the idea and, of a chord <laughs> makes my brain want to explode like what does that well, even it's mean? a really yeah right it's like it's a it's a it's a germanic idea it's a very late stage yeah. later stage development in the history of music theory and it's like this gigantor assumption and yeah i think the it's useful right because like it yeah, chord, totally useful at some level chords do exist i get that but what's more interesting to me now and increasingly like every piece that i write what's more interesting to me is that counterpoint that the harmony which is literally just spacing and doubling is a byproduct of counterpoint and yeah it's all in the line baby and man it's, like- it's so it's so <laughs> backwards from the way that I, well, I mean, you know, I I came into music through piano and I didn't really pay attention to my music theory lessons with my piano teacher. I paid enough attention to kind of get that we're in this key. So this is the scale we use, but I didn't really start getting into it until me and my friend started a band. And that's all that is, is you know, play a, a G chord as this on the guitar you know, like it, it is, it's very chord based. And then I went into music theory through that lens of, I'm going to learn how to be a better songwriter. And it was so, you know, and so in that sense, it is really useful because you, it's a shorthand, but you don't think about line when you're playing the guitar as a teenager, first learning, like it's not the most inherently melodic instrument that you could think of you can play melody but it's it's very much at least in the rock world and in the pop world and the world that i was coming from it was very much this is to serve as harmonic chords underneath to fill the the stuff so i had it like doubly bad (laughs) no i don't know i don't think it's bad necessarily because i came up in a similar way where i feel like the the good thing about having a vertical chord mentality is that you can, it's kind of like if you imagine the, you know, the, the, the cursor moving through time, like where are we in the song? You can kind of mm. see these like bricks that are passing one at a time. It's like one, six, two, five, one. <laughs> and yeah, and that's really useful. Right. And, and like, yeah, I can, you know, if I if I'm reading a jazz lead sheet, it's not like I don't believe that chords exist. Yeah, right, right. Because they because they really do, right? Like chord that, yeah. that entire vertical sensibility is really useful. Um and it but it's fascinating to me that like if I look at the the keyboard and I look at the notes C D E, 
you know, in three three notes in a row, um, what do they really mean? Well, I don't know. It completely depends on the the context because um, they could be part of an A flat altered dominant sound. They could be part of an, yeah. an F major nine sound. They could be part of an A minor eleven sound. They could be part. They could be. Yeah. literally anything and when i think about i remember as an undergrad going through a a uh, bach fugue and trying to label it with roman numerals and yeah. i didn't know <laughs> then that i was sort of like applying a later idea retroactively to music that wasn't invented for that purpose but and so oh, now yeah. i look at it as kind of like an exercise in absurdity but what i realize <laughs> is that the reason that those pieces are so um, gripping and effective is precisely because they don't fit into these like neat little harmonic bricks. Everything that makes yeah. it exciting is where, you know, like maybe, maybe, you know, as we're passing through time, yes, you could are, you can say that there is an underlying harmonic rhythm and a harmonic structure. That's great. It's true. But everything that makes it exciting is line based where there's yeah. these like thrilling suspensions that defy the Roman numerals, but that create yeah. the forward sound and everything is context dependent because you, you know, in you could have the same three notes that right. mean 25 different things based on the motion. And it's all about, yeah. And the direction it's all about motion through time. And it's not about like freeze drying a thing and taking a snapshot of the vertical at any one moment, which is sort of a hard lesson for me to learn as a pianist and guitarist and right sort of an analytic an analytical guy who likes to like like well i could explain all this if i if you just give me enough terminology uh right instead of saying like no man the, the music is produced by lines and they're not stopping because we're on our way someplace and that's like i think that's where the the excitement happens oh yeah and it, you 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 demonstrate that in the piece when it after quoth she and it kind of starts to build back up into the five eight and then the that kind of bickering couple uh, uh not bickering um jesting with each other yeah. couple yeah. between the soprano and bass start happening again but uh tighter it's the the it's it's faster the the echo it comes sooner and then it and then you have the tenor and alto coming in that super off kilter, you know, you know, you know. And then all of a sudden there is this moment of verticalness here. But that like F sharp or that, I mean, I mean, again, however you want to use terminology, but that that really tall vertical here at measure 76. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. again, it goes back to line and this cascading the echo comes sooner and sooner the pace is quickening and quickening until we get to the the ending and i i think you demonstrate that idea that the line drives it because music exists in time and so i think that's super idiomatic of the renaissance as well that <clears throat> excuse me where you have this sort of and you see it in madrigals and sacred music of the time motets all the different sub-genres within those where 
you know, you have this text, this idea of texture and pace that are somehow linked together. And as the piece goes on, the pace quickens to this golden mean and, or sometimes it quickens to the, all the way to the end. And the, whether the, the golden mean is kind of explored in a harmonic idea or a melodic idea or a textural idea or in pacing. And then all of a sudden it cascades and builds and it keeps growing until the, it kind of meets its finish. And that, that, that exists not just in the Renaissance that that exists throughout time. But I think that's, again, one of those, one of those principles that comes from this, the beginning of the modern era, which is the late medieval, early Renaissance that is one of those timeless musical elements. If we were to put it on our music periodic table, I think yeah. that's one, that's one of them, you know? Well, it's interesting. Cause the, I mean, you've, you've laid all of my tricks on the table and um, <laughs> the, you know, because the text is what it is, that's this kind of like uh playful fake, you know, arg- argument. Yeah. Just like, teasing. It's just teasing. Yeah, it's just teasing. I I literally imagined it as a little bit of a funny tug of war, right? If yeah. it were if it were staged on a if it was a piece of theater, you'd you'd imagine this kind of like um playful tug of war back, back between right. back, back and forth. And and so I thought, well, I want to write a melody that is easy to sing in its own right, but also works as a canon. And so everything I wrote had a I I in advance, I worked out melodies that would work as canons with themselves and knowing that it would become a tug of war. And so um, when it gets to that spot that you mentioned where there, uh, this is bottom of page 11, where the tenors and altos are, are basically going, you, no, you, you, no, you. <laughs> and I just thought that would be right. hilarious. It would be really funny to to set you, no, you in music. And that, that, that's so hilarious. That was the, so that's like the inside guts, this rising line going, you, no, you. And then the, the, the melodic materials just sort of spiraling around itself as a canon. And I think I haven't, I mean, I haven't done the math down to like the semi-quaver, but uh, here is probably approximately the golden mean. Uh, yeah. I mean, oh, no, it totally is. And then you have it, it comes down and it builds back up. And yeah, I, I think day, little denouement, all the, all the t- typical tricks in the composer's trade. And then, but it, but they exist for a reason, you know, like they, it's, it's timeless for a reason, because again, the, the idea that it, the idea that it exists or the being able to clearly articulate and define what it is came after the fact that it existed. Sure. So it's like, I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I think because again, there's other new elements that make it not, the same old thing like you said where it's this predictable template that i think they're different things oh, you know yeah. well i mean i would i would get a, a i would not get a passing grade from tinctoris on some of my uh you know on my <laughs> admissible, well. admissible dissonances <laughs> and all this um but uh you know i i feel like it it's a nod to the era. oh yeah well that's that's it's what it's supposed to be you know so 
I, I think it, it works really well. So if you could, if you if you're looking if you're a conductor out there, and you're looking for a uh, a new and old type thing, you can put. That was the month of May by Thomas Morley, and put Poor Richard's Madrigal right afterwards, and it would be a killer set. There you go. Something. What is it? Something old. Something new. Something borrowed. Something blue. Madrigals. Yes. Hey, Drew. Till next time. Till next time, amigo. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode. And I just love, I love that little piece, Poor Richard's Madrigal. I think it actually explains and does a really good job of bringing early music out of the museum and connecting the old to the new. Even though we're, we're, we were kind of using anachronistic language, uh, applying styles of analysis to to a time period that didn't use those types of analysis and trying to wrap our head around something new without using the labels inherent and created in the common practice era. Because I just feel like those common practice era terminologies, it's just like any era of theory where you you create certain terminology and certain labels and certain identifiers for certain principles for the aesthetic that you're analyzing and you try to apply it as broadly as you can and say well all music fits into this box and it just doesn't all fit into the same box and so it's really fun and exciting to find the old principles and connect it with the new and that's something Andrew and I try to do pretty much all the time. Every program we put together, every piece he writes, every collaboration we have, all of our episodes we're trying to find what are what is the essence? What are what are what is the music periodic table that came from back then and where do we see it today and how do we connect those two dots together? So it was a it was a fun conversation and hopefully you enjoyed it and yeah, check out Andrew's work he has another piece that he wrote for the program called invitation to love that maybe we'll we'll discuss in another episode as well but those old and new principles tying together is is what keeps us on our toes and is uh really exciting so be sure to check out sound of ages uh all things coming up we have a cool concert coming up of andrew's music that we're going to talk about on a future episode to kind of promote a little bit. So stay tuned for that. That's exciting. And we'll catch you next time on Early Music Monday.